Hey everybody, and welcome to the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Corey House. Coming at you from sunny Kansas City. Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. We, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Sorma from Google. You want to introduce Hi, yourself? Uh, yeah, so I'm Sorma. I've been working on, or I am working on, the Chrome DevRel team for Google and I'm a part of the team that is based in London, although we're as several all over the world. Um, and I have been working on anything that has to do with web app performance, both the runtime performance as well as loading. And that kind of got me also working on HTTP2 and interactions and UX and spec work. And that's kind of my, my thing. Very cool. And we've had uh, Ilya Grigoric on Ruby Rogues, and that's how we got in contact with you. Exactly. Yeah, you forwarded uh, your request to me, and even though I, I failed to respond the first time, I finally made it, and I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. So for those that don't know, do you want to kind of explain what the HTTP protocol is and what HTTP2, what, what's, what the difference is? Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. Yeah, I can try to not go into a whole one hour talk right now and just keep it brief. So HTTP is probably even as a non-developer, something that you have seen in the browser because that's usually what is in front of the address bar where it says HTTP colon double slash and sometimes it's HTTPS. Um, but that is the protocol that we have been using since the nineties basically to talk to web servers and to request files that we then download and display as a website onto our display. And with this protocol, we transfer HTML, we transfer JavaScript files, we transfer Java, uh, CSS files, and the browser then combines all these into the web page that you see. Um, and as I said, we've been using this since the early 90s, which is where HTTP 1.0 came out. Quickly after, I think in 1995, I think is where they upgraded HTTP a little bit to HTTP 1.1 because they realized that some decisions that they made were not really um, well suited for the way the web was being used and you know did some things like they added uh, a bit of caching, they allowed more control over how a connection should be reused, all these kind of things. Um, but more or less still the same, same protocol, text-based, human-readable. Um, and we've gotten pretty far with it, although we have had developers take a few workarounds and shortcuts to uh, use it in the modern day, despite some shortcomings. And at some point, people sat down and rethought the protocol about or thought about the shortcomings, the pain points of the current way that HTTP is being used and how it could be addressed on the protocol level. And I think it was mostly engineers at Google who came up with a protocol called, called Speedy. Um, and they kind of launched that in Chrome just to see how it would affect 
deliver statistics in terms of like uh, time to the first paint, how fast can multiple requests be handled by the server side? Is it more strain on the CPU? Could it be compressed better? All these kind of things they evaluate. It turns out it was much better because in the 90s, it was designed for something completely different, for static documents with a few images and headlines, while now we do more like apps with multiple megabytes of images and JavaScript and dynamic content and all these kind of things. Um, and after playing around with Speedy for a while, they tried to standardize it, and that's basically the foundation that they used to what is now the AGB2 spec, the new iteration, the next iteration of HTTP. Uh, and it's not, and while it is backwards compatible, um, it brings, if the browser has support, which all browsers by now basically do, it brings so many new features or so many different approaches to the to the file delivery problem that uh, web developers have to think very differently about how to write their web apps, or at least can stop doing some of the weird things they had to do with HTTP one. I think that should is a short version of the entire thing. So I was setting up Nginx the other day and it had an HTTP2 flag in it. So what what is that doing for me then on my web server? Like why, um, why, what difference am I going to see or am I not going to see any difference? So my, my I've been giving a few talks about HTTP2 and basically I usually start and end my talks with, if you want to leave now, just enable HTTP2 and you will get better performance. Because that's pretty much what it is. If you don't touch anything, you just keep doing what you're doing. You do the same build pipeline. You have your gulp tasks and whatnot, and all that set up. And you just enable HTTP2 on your Nginx or your Apache or whatever you're using. You should see uh, a 20, 30, 40, 50% improvement in loading time. And that is due to multiple things that are happening. So one of the biggest things that ha has happened with HD2 is the problem of head of line blocking is gone. Well, so one of the issues by design in HD1 was that if you sent out a request, you had this connection, you sent a request, and that connection couldn't do anything else until the point where the response from the server came back. So there's a lot of, usually a lot of dead time because you have the whole round trip, like 100 milliseconds, the, pad, the request goes to the server, is being processed on the server side, and then the server sends a response back. This is dead time. Um, there's, and by design, because the protocol was designed this way, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and that ends up costing you 150, 200 milliseconds, depending on connection and geographical distance of the server per request. And that is not good. And what they did in the old times is they allowed you to have up to six connections in parallel, but that's only six. And if you think about how websites are usually written nowadays, that you get the index HTML and the index HTML references like four CSS file and eight JavaScript files, you get you get to feel that limit of six connections very, very quickly. And HD2 doesn't have it anymore. So what on HD2, you only have one single connection. And all these requests and responses basically share that one connection or being multiplexed onto that single connection. So if one request is done sending and just waiting for the answer, another request can take over the connection and just continue sending and utilizing the bandwidth that is available, which most of the time, on average, gives you 30% speed up in terms of loading time. And that's probably the, the biggest thing 
And as a result of that, uh, head of line blocking is the biggest reason why we have practices like bundling and image sprighting and basically reducing the number of requests by packing multiple resources into one file. Um, and even though you shouldn't just go with, shouldn't have your website make, go into like having a million files, you can now stop the bundling and the spriting thing unless you have a really big number of assets. But you, as in general, you can probably stop doing the bundling and make better use of caching because now you can use profile caching because HTTP2 can handle multiple requests much, much better than HTTP1 could. So if you just enabled Nginx to use HTTP2, you did the right thing. Yay, the right thing for me. So I've heard some mixed advice on exactly what front-end developers should do when they're working in HTTP2. Some people have really tried to simplify it down to say that bundling uh, all your assets into a single file is now an anti-pattern. Um, and I get the impression that that is true, that in HTTP2 that you're better off splitting into many separate bundles. Um, for performance so that you can get those benefits. Because effectively, if I deliver a single bundle, I'm really missing out on some of the core benefits of HTTP2. Is is that correct? Uh, yes, and also some core benefits of HTTP1. So having everything in one big bundle is definitely an anti-pattern because uh, one of the big issues is that this bundle is usually very big. Like we're probably talking about 500, 600K, probably much more on the average website. and the point is that if you update your website, any even one byte change will completely invalidate that big bundle. So if the user revisits the website, they have to re-download the entire bundle. While if you have all your files separate, they only need to re-download the one file that changed, which is probably much, much smaller. And that's an, a benefit that's actually already in HTTP1 caching, but due to the best practice of bundling, it could never be really used. So. Um, can I ask yeah. really quickly then, um, what about people with older browsers? Or I guess the other way of asking this is, do most of the evergreen browsers we see now, you know, with Firefox and Chrome and Edge, do they all support HTTP2 then so that we can just not worry about this anymore if people have updated browsers? Yes. So on in general, so there's multiple things here. In general, the answer is yes. All the evergreen browsers do support HTTP2. I usually say if you have a very specific target group, just look at can I use, you can actually, what I didn't know until I uh, learned about this is that you can upload your Google Analytics file or your data to caniuse.com and it gives you statistics what features on your specific visitor group is available. So for example, if you were an India-based company with a very exclusively Indian demographic. That is one of the rare instances where you probably shouldn't switch to HTTP just yet because the UC browser is very, very popular over there and it's one of the only browsers that doesn't have support for HTTP2. Mm -hmm. Pretty much all the other ones do. If I'm not mistaken, even Edge has uh, HTTP2 support. I'm trying to verify this now real quick. Yeah, even Edge had support uh, with Windows 10, not on Windows 8, but you know, it's, it's kind of there. Um, and one of the things that, that's probably important to, to make clear is that HV2 is backwards compatible. So if a browser doesn't support HV2, the server is required by spec to fall back to HV1. Or it's actually the other way around. Technically, 
HTTP2 is a protocol upgrade from HTTP1. Um, that means that, of course, if you have optimized your website to HTTP2, that it will be slower and less performant than HTTP1 in terms of loading. But on average, the amount of users that get the HTTP1 experience should be very, very small, if not completely neglectable. What about on mobile devices? It applies the same to mobile devices, except I think Opera Mini. All browsers have support for HTTP2. Cool. Sorry I interrupted you. You were saying something else, but I don't know if we remember what that was. I remember either. Couldn't have been that important. But yeah, basically, this is the, the biggest one I would cover. Like, uh, I think the global average right now is about 85% have support for HTTP2. If you exclude India, it gets even higher. So, um, it's, so at this point, I would say it is probably not worth your time optimizing for the 10% who don't get, don't have support for HTTP2. So it sounds like so far it's, you know, don't use the build tools to put it all into one giant file and then tell ops to enable HTTP2. Is there other practical advice for JavaScript developers? Um, for JavaScript developers as a node or just like web developers who do JavaScript? Either one. Um, so one of the things that some people do, which I think is an easy thing to, to try into, is that they start um, setting up HTTP2 on their the web server that you usually spawn with your app, like if you do node development. But most of the time, so one thing, oh, actually I think I didn't mention at all, is that HTTP2 is always encrypted. So you always need a certificate with HTTP2. There is technically a spec for a clear text version of HTTP2, but all the browsers have opted out of implementing that, which is one of the ways that they're trying to push HTTPS forward that all sites should be encrypted by default. Um, and since Let's Encrypt I don't, is there to just give you free certificates, I don't think that is too much to ask at this point. So you will have to have HTTPS set up. And that is one of the reasons why when you're actually deploying an app, you probably want um, HTTP2 to be terminated at the load balancer stage and not be used to talk between, to communicate between your individual instances of your app. Basically the same that you would do when you have had normal TLS, that you would terminate the TLS encryption at the load balancer and just have normal HTTP1 behind the, the edge in the back end to talk to between the instances. Um, so if you'd want to do HTTP2, unless you do static hosting, you probably don't want to set up an HTTP2 server yourself, but just put a little answer in front of it or just use anything that already has configured for you. Um, for JavaScript developers, it shouldn't be any different except if you, for some reason, somehow rely on your module bundler to do things for you, because now these files are probably separate, which is a good thing. Um, but something that you should be aware of because they're now not bundled anymore. So I guess one, one, of, one of the very few benefits of the uh, bundling was that you did a request for that bundle and you would know that all the dependencies you could possibly need are now available because they were all bundled together in that single file. Um, now it's a little bit different because 
when you request something, it will only respond with the ex exact thing you requested, and that might have dependencies which will spawn additional requests. Um, and there's two things that you can do about them and that you probably should do about them. The, the more safe version for now is to use link preload headers or link preload meta tags, um, which once the browser encounters them, instructs the browser to go ahead and fetch that resource because you are basically guaranteeing to the browser that th these resources are going to be needed later on. Um, and then there's the even more, uh, the newer version, the more bleeding edge version of using HTTP2 push. And that's actually super interesting because what it allows you to do is from the server side, if a request for index HTML comes in, the server can then go and say, you just requested index HTML, so I'm pretty sure you're going to request the app.css and the app.js file, so I'm going to just give those back to you as well, even though you haven't even requested them yet. And that ba basically puts them in the browser's cache, even though it's com not completely true, but it makes them available on the browser side. So if the browser wants to go up and fetch them, they can already stop because they're already there in memory cache and just grab them and use them on the page, which shaves off a lot of loading time because again, round time trips are about 150 milliseconds or something. So that saves a lot of time while loading. Um, the guidance here is still somewhat developing because HTTP push is not, is still newer than HTTP2 itself or it wasn't implemented as at the same stage as HTTP2. So lots of browsers just started with HTTP2 without the push support and are now pulling up push. Um, but one of the patterns we've been advocating a lot for is called the purple pattern. And that's probably something I should explain later, but I don't want to derail everything. So I hope that, that answered your question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. I keep interrupting with questions though, so I'm going to let somebody else ask. Uh, so I just want to get back to the whole having servers using HTTP2. I mean, you talked about that a little bit, but like if I am a Node dev, a .NET dev, a Java dev, and I'm at a small enough shop that either uh, I'm full stack and I'm dealing with the server and putting that together, how do I go about getting this you getting HTTP going for my site or what about is there hosting facilities out there that are are most of the public hosting facilities out there like uh, you know any of the common ones are they using HTTP already as far as I know most of the infrastructure as a service companies do offer HTTP 2 so I know that Google Cloud Platform does HTTP2 also for custom domains if you have a TLS certificate for it. I'm pretty sure AWS does the same. I know it for their S3 buckets. I'm not so sure about their um, their bare metal offering, basically. Um, one of the things you can always do is to use the free offering of Cloudflare as a CDN because they basically just give you a, a certificate and HTTP2 for free, which makes a lot of sense because it, it, it should only be used from on the edge server, so as a CDN layer, because it makes the transferring of the file so much faster. So uh, I personally mostly use it right now or use HTTP2 by using Cloudflare, which is really, really convenient. Um, yeah, but basically what, what I meant earlier is that you should just keep an eye out on the fact that you don't want to use 
HTTP2 to talk between your different microservices because you don't want to have the encryption overhead. And at server-server connection, you don't have the limit of six connections that browsers impose. So the whole problem of head-of-line blocking is not really there. And you don't do caching on that layer usually anyway. So it's um, not worth spinning, like, generating your own certificates just to have HTTP2 for server-to-server communication. So I was just thinking about, like, <clears throat> you know, to extend on, on this, like your typical, not like the infrastructure as a service places like Amazon and such, but uh, your common hosting places like Heroku. Did a quick little web search and turns out that Heroku, at least at the current time, does not support Speedy or HTTP2. Uh, how, as a developer, should I use that as a criteria for where to put my, where to host my apps? I'm actually really sad that Heroku did not add support for HTTP2 still because they have been asking for, I want to say, almost two years now, if not longer, and it's still not happening. I find it a little bit weird. Um, for me, it would be a criteria at this point because I know with other similar services, you do get HTTP2. But as I just said, if if you are committed to Heroku and, and they do have a really nice service, I have to admit that, then... Um, you can probably get along with Cloudflare for now. Although I'm not sure how um, how dynamic you can be if you want to do push over Cloudflare. I think you can do it with HTTP link headers, which are then transformed by Cloudflare into pushes. But I have not tried that out, so I'm not sure how reliable or performant it is. But at this point, I would say that the performance gains are so big, and especially for the long tail of users, um, mm -hmm. that HTTP two should become a very big criterion on on your list for choosing where and how to host. Huh. Interesting. I guess I'll go ahead and ask. I'm looking at your doc, and you have a bullet point about local development. Was there something specific that you wanted to share about that? Oh yeah. So local development is currently or was is a little bit painful because as i said http2 is always encrypted so um what that means is that you will need a tls certificate for localhost which you can't get anywhere so what you would have to do is you would have to bust out your open ssl command line tool generate a self-signed certificate yourself use that and then realize that your browser is going to complain about a self-signed certificate and you have to click through the I accept the security exception kind of dialogue until it can finally start developing with a certificate locally. Um, and that's really, really annoying. And so what I did is I sat down a while ago and I wrote a tool called Simple HTTP2 Server which is very much inspired by Python's Simple HTTP Server which is I think very popular amongst web developers because you just started with Python-M simple HD server to spawn a web server that serves the current directory that you're in. So to do like little hacky things, uh, that's a command of news, but I wanted to have the same thing for HTTP2. And that is exactly what it does. I wrote it in Go because that would allow me to basically just distribute binaries around which people could just download and use. 
Um, and that tool does all the certificate generation shenanigans for you. So basically you just type the command and you have your web server. And that has been proven to be really, really useful because it actually allows you to test out the performance gains locally with dev tools, network throttling to see what the impact is. Uh, I also added support for push. So if you want to play around with that, you there is a way to add a little config file um, which specifies basically if a request for index HTML come in, comes in, push these resources. If a request for slash about.html comes in, push these, and so on and so forth. Um, and that is basically just showed me that this is a big developer pain point. So I've been talking to the Chrome team and it is still ongoing that right now, which is really annoying, if you do that, it kind of works. So you can, it actually works. You can just start the web, ser web server, go to the local URL. You still have to do the security exception and that's not going to go away because it is a security exception. Um, and so developing, but what doesn't work is doing service workers because apparently the, the installation process or the registration process of the service worker is a somewhat separate process. So the service worker is kind of asking to, again, get an exception for the security error there, but you don't see any dialogue, so you can't click it. So therefore it just fails. And that's super annoying. So right now you have to start Chrome with a command line flag, and that's hopefully going to change soon. I'm working on that. Um, but I just found it super eye-opening to see how a simple requirement like that could basically break all assumptions and make local development really painful. So I, I try to encourage people to download and try out simple H2 server, just use their, for example, blog, serve it locally with the old Python simple HP server, uh, throttle yourself to like 3G, something like that, and watch the loading time, and then switch over to the simple HP2 server, do the same thing and see how it just is on average just faster and that if you experience it firsthand it should hopefully be pretty convincing that at least your static assets if not all of it should be should be on hd2 now what so, about like uh sorry Corey, didn't mean to get you off go ahead joe uh what about like just implementation let's say i've been building something and I've already got it up and running somewhere, and I decide, all right, I want to, I want to switch my web server and make it support HTTP two. Is there some kind of a reasonable time like I can expect to say, all right, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to read about how to get this all done. I'm going to get it done, and by the time I'm totally done and have it deployed on a, are we talking like, is it a day's worth of work? Is it a week's worth of work? How long can most people expect to, to if they want to devote and say, we're going to put HTTP two on our, we're going to support HTTP two. Um, so if you have your own cluster, whatever kind of setup, I actually have a blog post I just remembered, um, where I try to have an explanation how to enable HP2 on all the major setups, Nginx, uh, Apache 2, Cloud Platform, AWS, which I don't think I have updated yet, but all these things I listed there, if you use a language package, like if you use node HTTP or if you use the Go web server, uh, I explained those as well, what you need to do to get the certificate in there and to switch it over to HTTP. Most of them should be 
up and running in a matter of a few hours. Um, it's probably going to take more time to make sure that it's, you know, production ready and does fail over and all these kind of things. But uh, if you just want to switch your code website from HTTP to HTTP2 without actually changing or removing bundling, all these kind of things, which is a very valid first step to just switch to the new protocol, it should already make your website faster. Um, I, I would like to say that it should be very well done within a day. People are probably going to scold me for that, but I'm going to stand by it just to, to make people curious and try it out. <laughs> yeah, Joe actually took my question, so I was thinking of a different one. <laughs> you win, Joe. So what's, what's tough about this subject is that it's not about so much like coding, right? It's like infrastructure. Are you looking to expand your skills in mobile development? Have an idea for the next Angry Birds app? Then you need to check out iOS Remote Conf, produced by the same team that brings you your favorite devchat.tv podcasts like Ruby Rogues and iFreaks. Join us for two days of jam-packed fun and learning streamed to you live May 17th and 18th. Go check it out at iosremoteconf.com. So what's what's tough about this subject is that it's not about so much like coding, right? It's like infrastructure. Yeah, lots of configuration. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like for for me, I keep thinking about this. Like, ah, this sounds really cool. I need to tell somebody to make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I, I don't know. If I want to spend all my time doing it. No, I, I, I have realized that uh, doing the whole maintenance backend configuration thing is not something I, I would necessarily enjoy. But maybe something that, that would spike your interest. A lot of people have asked if with push that uh, WebSockets are obsolete, which I found a very interesting question. At the start, I was actually convinced that that would be the case, that once you have push, you don't need WebSockets anymore because you can just do requests as the one direction and you can just push for the other direction. And that's kind of how you could do bi-directional on-demand communication and therefore no need for web, web sockets. And that would be kind of cool because web sockets are a different protocol and therefore a, an additional connection. And it sounded very interesting. And after I uh, at first believed that and actually even had it at, at my in my talk at CDS where I said, maybe WebSockets will be obsolete, who knows? Uh, I am now exactly on the opposite time saying, no, WebSockets still have a very valid uh, use case and are probably here to stay. And I should probably expand on that because what um, the reason is basically that while a push is kind of forcing data from the server to the clients, it is always a request together with a response. So it's not just pushing a response to the client because then the client wouldn't know what that response is for, but it pushes a request and a response together. And so the client has this pair and whenever the, the, the app in whatever way files a request that matches this request that has been pushed, the response can be returned. If the request doesn't match, it will go to the network and everything will happen as usual. And if this push response never gets used, it will just get dropped and not land in the cache. And the second thing is that most, not only proxies, but basically every node 
in between your, let's say, mobile phone and the server have in the meantime been usually configured to give WebSockets different treatment than normal HTTP packets, uh, which means they are very low, they manage to get very low latency and sometimes even higher priority. And therefore WebSockets are much more low latency and a better use case for real-time communication. And you don't have the overhead of headers, which you in WebSockets, you probably don't need to just want to push a payload, some kind of data object over to the client and not worry about pushing headers back and forth every time. Are there features of JavaScript or features of maybe particular frameworks that this is going to replace? So maybe we don't need, I don't know, I'm just throwing something out there, maybe observables or promises or something like that where you know, it, it changes the dynamics of, of how those requests are made. And so, you know, hey, whatever. Um, I, I know that's a poor example because that's dealing with asynch- asynchronous calls. But I, I know, but I know what you're getting at. Um, and I think by design on the service level, it really shouldn't. Like everything should stay the same. It should It should be just a protocol layer change without any changes that in like without any necessary changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I could see happening though is that um, cookies could get more potentially used more than they are now. So one of the things that I didn't mention so far is that HP2 also has a new compression for headers. So I, I guess you all know that usually when you head a web server, usually enable GZIP compression because mm-hmm. it's a lossless compression. So there's basically no downside and you make the amount of data needs to get transferred smaller, which is yay, that's good. Um, but one of the things that uh, weren't were, com- were not, never compressed even with GZIP were the headers. So GZIP compression only applies to the content, not to the headers of the request or the response. Those are always plain text. And that meant that if you had lots of cookies or lots of custom headers, those would just be data on top of your request that or response that had to get transferred and cookies would have to get transferred every time, which is why right now there is the best practice of having a specific subdomain that has cookies and if the content should not be on that subdomain so that you don't send along your cookies for every static image that you grab. HV2, however, added a compression called HPAC, which compresses headers. And the cool thing about that is because now requests, all requests share a connection that instead of it's not just compressing them like GZIP, but it can also reference headers from earlier requests. So for example, if you have a cookie, like an extremely long session ID, or maybe you even encode your entire session into a cookie, it will only get sent once because from there on in, the compressor can say, just reuse the same header from like three requests ago, it's still the same value, which is super cool because I know that back then when I got started with, uh, web server development in Go, that there was a module that would basically not give you a session ID, but encode or encrypt rather the entire user session into a cookie. So it's basically a JSON object, which had like the username and the current settings and whatnot in the cookie would encrypt it with a server side key and put it in a cookie. And of course, they warned back then that this would not be a good idea because that cookie would be sent on every request. But now it would actually be different or it could be different. Whereas like, actually, that's not even that bad anymore. So I may, I, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I could see that actually change that frameworks 
are more liberal in offering um, cookie-based sessions. It's just one example. Very interesting. Another thing I just realized that I mentioned earlier, and I thought I should expand on this purple, which um, is something that frameworks should offer. And I think Polymer is doing that right now with a command line tool. And that is a design pattern that makes takes advantage of AATP2 push in combination with service workers. So that's like the ultimate leading edge combination, but it actually is so, so good when it comes to loading performance. So what that does is, on the one hand, it gives you guidance on how you should structure your bundling. So bundling should still maybe be a thing because um, just as a logical unit, basically bundling all the code together that you need for your main app view, and then have a different bundle for everything you need about your about view or the typical, if you think in like views, it might make sense to bundle them. Not necessarily, but it might make sense. Um, and the, oh, actually purple is an acronym. So it stands for push, render, preload, and lazy load. And that's basically the list of priority that you have to work through. So the first thing is to push. And that can stand for HD2 push, but it can also stand for any other means of pushing data to the client. So it could be a link preload header, for example, but push is probably the highest performing solution you can currently use. So with the index HTML, you should push everything that you need to render because you want to be able to render without having additional runtime trips. And that means that you can be, that you should be able to be on screen in under a second, even on a on a flaky 3G network where you just have one round trip. And then when the response of the index HTML returns, you also get the response to all the other things that you need so the, so the client can start rendering. And we have found out that if an app renders that fast, the user is much more likely to stay. And that's usually what we're all striving for. Um, so you want to push and you want to render. And then you want to uh, preload the things that are probably needed to be responsive for the next user's interaction. So you want to push the data to render the sidebar, but then you want to uh, prefetch the code that is needed to be actually interactive with the sidebar because that's not needed for the first render, but it's needed right after. And everything else should be lazy loaded. Once you actually navigate to a different page, then you start loading that bit, and then the whole purple cycle starts over again. Um, and service worker comes in because you probably only want push on the first load. And afterwards, the request for index HTML is going to be intercepted by the service worker. And you probably have everything cached already. So you don't need to the server to actually push anything because you have it all locally. Um, but you can do a lot of the, the pushing work, so to speak, locally by prefetching into service worker. But that was a long story to basically say, I think this purple pattern is what frameworks are going to adapt and hopefully allow developers to, or help them structure the app in a way in different sections that can be pushed and prefetched according to the purple pattern. So in a natural way, achieve very high loading performance. And one example that Polymer has is the Polymer shop example, which is just mind blowing in terms of how fast it loads, even over a very slow and flaggy connection. Um, so if if someone hasn't seen it, I encourage to take a look at the experience, open DevTools, see, look at the timeline, and also look at the source code, uh, and just play around with it a little bit, because it actually shows how fast the web can be, and it's something that 
people need to be aware of to actually realize how slow most other websites are nowadays. And for anybody listening, if you just type PRPL into Google, you'll the first hit is what you're looking for there for more reading. Um, this is definitely something worth reading about. I know Addy has a, a good talk on this topic as well. And I, th- and I mean, IO is coming up in two weeks. I'm pretty sure we're going to have more content then for that as well. But yeah, I should have mentioned it's actually PRPL and just pronounced purple. And we do have some, some articles on it out there and a talk by Eddie and I think a talk also by Alice Russell. Um, definitely worth watching. I think it's going to be one of the more common patterns in the coming year. So here, here's kind of a larger question. This is something that I'm struggling with a lot. Um, a, a lot of us as developers, as our careers go on, we're being forced to become more and more specialists in more narrow areas just because there's so much to know in these given areas. And I'm thinking about even more uh, right now as a, I'm somebody who's front end focused, but I don't feel like I have the time to dive deep into as far as deep into performance as I'd like to. And I think the conversation we're ultimately having here is largely about performance. I, I think you agree that's the primary benefit of HTTP2, although there are some other obviously security uh, benefits because you're being forced to do yeah. the right thing there. Um, do you think that Who's, whose responsibility is it at an organization to get people on HTTP2? Do you see this as a DevOps uh, responsibility? Do you see it as a front-end developer's responsibility to push this? Where are you seeing companies getting the inertia to make these sorts of changes? And when we talk about Purple 2, uh, now Purple, I feel like, is more obviously UI, but this thing with HTTP2, who's making it happen? Who, who do you think should be p- driving this? So the people who actually literally make it happen would probably be DevOps because they have to put it to, to flick the switch. Um, but I feel like the people who have to apply the pressure to to their reporting chain to I, I like however it works in your startup slash company. Um, the the main concern that you should be after is user experience make this website load fast, make this web app feel like an actual app and be snappy and be there immediately. And to achieve that, you need HTTP2 because even with link preload, you can do a good job of purple, but H2 will do a much better job of purple. So when you're a front app dev and you're trying to do the purple pattern and try to be as mindful as you can about being frugal, just requesting the resource that you really need to get on screen as fast as possible, and then H2 standing in the way of being able to getting the best performance out of that, that's where you need to apply the pressure to your DevOps or to your manager or whatever to say, we need to enable this so that we can be better at this. Um, it's, it's, it's hard, I think. Uh, I can't really give a generic answer here, but if you, if you look at it holistically or just from the end user perspective, really, um, the data that's out there, multiple people have run experiments with HV2 just on CDNs have done it. The New York Times, I think, have done it, published the data as well. And the data just speaks unanimously in favor of doing it. And that's I, that should really be enough to just be like, everybody says it is a good idea. It will give us performance for free. So we need to do it. Yeah, I agree. I think the, I think a lot of people understand the benefits. Um, I think the interesting thing is this has a lot of the same problem as some other things that are, are struggling to gain 
um, broad adoption quickly. I, I look at things like GraphQL, for instance, that lots of people are excited about. But the reason that GraphQL isn't um, getting adoption as quickly is the people that are most excited about it are front-end developers. But to actually implement it, you have to get other people involved on the back end. And there seems to often be the yeah. separation. So I think some of the same things happening here, because I'm looking at myself, I'm not in a huge company, I'm working at a company about 500 people. But nonetheless, I have a lot of power to do basically whatever I want on the front end, I have a lot yeah. of autonomy there. But the minute that I have to move back to the servers, it becomes put in a request, um, lots of meetings, lots of justifications, what are the risks of this? What are the performance implications? So I think the, what do you feel like, uh, it, what do you feel like is the best way to justify these things to to DevOps? Because the hard thing is DevOps really has very little incentive to be that excited about this because they don't have the incentive to worry about performance in the same way that a front-end developer does. And really, it's the front-end developer that gets to say, hey, boss, look, I accomplished this awesome thing, whereas the DevOps person is unlikely to, to put this on their, hey, look at this great thing I accomplished list. So I guess to some degree, it comes down to um, having the conversation that you and I are having here, where to some degree, you have to do the sales pitch with DevOps to justify this work above all the other things that are keeping them very busy. Yeah. Uh, so I guess giving it a high priority, that is probably the tough bit. Um, in terms of what can go wrong, it the I mean, it never is the ideal world, but theoretically it it should just work it should work transparently it should literally be a configuration switch like one variable in your nginx configuration provided you already have it you already have hbs set up and all good citizens usually do um and then it should just work and nothing should uh change in, ter in terms of how the servers operate and how they behave i know that's probably not very realistic at least 100 of the time but um that's how you should start. And I guess you could do start with an AB setup where you just start sending five, 10% of your traffic to the new, to the new 82 version. If you're worried about this kind of stuff. Um, again, the driving factor should be the, 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 the motivation behind it should be that it makes your user's experience much better. It should load faster. And we have had, or I've seen multiple studies where it's being said that faster load times, correlate with more conversion, whatever you're trying to convert for. I think Amazon actually said most famously that um, 100 milliseconds in load time meant a 30% drop off in sales or something along those lines. Don't quote me on that. I would have to look it up. But um, load time usually means literally money in the bank. And that should be a very good argument to, to do it. Totally agree. Yeah, get to the bottom line. So do you um, have, in your experience, have there been any big surprises where somebody switched over to HTTP2, they thought it'd be easy, and it turned out they overlooked this particular thing, other than HTTPS being the obvious, hey, you needed to get that on first. Is there any other big stumbling blocks that people consistently hit? I'm actually not, not asked. I have never ask that question because it has not happened. So the actual answer is right now, no, I have not heard okay. of any bigger problems with this. Because as I said, it, it is just a protocol change. It should work transparently. All the files are sent back and forth. So it should definitely not break your app. Mm -hmm. In terms of CPU cycles, it should be the same. Oh, actually one interesting, interesting stat that I heard is 
that even if you have an HTTP setup, so without TLS, some people were concerned that going to HD2 would be too expensive, would put strain on the servers because now they have the encryption there. Even then, the website would still load faster because the speed up that HTTP provides with removing head of line blocking and all these things more than makes up for the additional overhead of encryption. And it does that because effectively each connection is resolved more quickly? Well, you only have one connection at this point. Okay. So it only has to build up one connection and then everything is sent over the connection, which also means that bandwidth is usually utilized much more efficiently than the HTTP one counterpart. Gotcha. One thing that I'm curious about too is, um, you know, being, I, I've done back end and front end, um, the question is, does this tend to affect the performance of the back end? I mean, we've talked a lot about front end performance, but what about back end performance? So I don't have any hard numbers on this, but I mentioned before that in my mind, at least, you should terminate HD2 on the load balancer. So as mm -hmm. if your app actually is more than a single server setup, which I have to assume right now because everything else is probably going to be fine. Um, so something that you can scale out horizontally usually has a load balancer in front. And behind the load balancer towards your individual microservices, you would speak HTTP1, while to the, towards the client, you would use HTTP2. So that would mean that the uh, strain on the microservices would only be would be the same or would only be higher in so far and that you'll be able to get more visitors or you would have more visitors or mm -hmm. just handle more at the same time. If you have a single server setup, then I don't have any numbers. I would assume that there would be a little bit more strain because yes, now you have to do uh, encryption. And But I think like in terms of loading performance, it would be better, but maybe a little bit more strain, just like, just like adding TLS. I don't think that the header compression or the protocol itself would increase the load specifically also because the the protocol is now binary so there's no text parsing and i would think that the engineers made the parsing more efficient than the old text-based version but that is now again speculation on my part um probably something i should look into it's a very interesting question this episode is sponsored by hired.com are you searching for a new job that can be stressful scary and time-consuming Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what, what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. 
your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you go check them out at the show's link, that's hire.com slash JavaScript Jabber, you can get double the hiring bonus that they offer. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at hire.com slash JavaScript Jabber today. Than the old text-based version, but that is now again speculation on my part. Um, probably something I should look into. It's a very interesting question. All right. Well, I've got to get ready for another podcast, so I'm going to push us toward picks. Is is there anything else that we absolutely should cover though before we get to picks, or have we covered pretty much everything that we need to? I th- I think we're good. I'm trying to remember what I put in the doc, but I think I we we covered everything that I thought was important. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Yep. So since I wasn't here last week, uh, this is one that I wanted to share. Um, It's like a little game. I know there's a Flexbox game a while back, but this is uh, for CSS Grid that's coming out. And it looks pretty cool. And then my other pick is an international JavaScript conference. It's in October in Munich, Germany. I'm super excited that I'm going to be speaking there. Uh, So if you feel like taking a trip to Germany to learn more about JavaScript, I would highly recommend going. And I'll put a link for both those things in the show notes. That's it for me. Joe, what are your picks? Um, Can I pick something that I haven't seen yet? Guardians of the Galaxy comes out Thursday night, and how can I not pick that? Like, it's volume two. You should go and see it. Of course, it'll be out by the time people hear this. So I hope that I really don't pick something bad. I can't imagine it's bad. Marvel's done such a great job with movies. I think that they deserve the benefit of the doubt. So I'm going to pick Guardians of the Galaxy, even though I haven't seen it. It's going on. Is that the new Superwoman What's the new super? That's just super one. Oh, yeah. Amy, come on. That's DC, <laughs> not Marvel. I thought I'm a girl. I thought, <laughs> that's no, that's, that's there, not. There is a new Wonder Woman coming out. There I think, are so many yeah, women, but know way more I, about this than I do. Uh, sorry. Well, <laughs> okay. So let me, let me give you a primer here, Amy. You cut that part Wonder out. Woman is DC. I thought DC and Marvel were the same thing. No, DC and Marvel are different. Uh-oh. And Guardians of the Galaxy is Marvel. Okay, can, you, can we seriously cut this out? Because I'm going to hate Like, not kidding. Like, really? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'm not kidding. But I'm going to remember this forever. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm a figure skating ballerina. I don't know this stuff. <laughs> All right, Joe, pick it again. All right, so I want to pick Guardians of the Galaxy coming out on Thursday night. I haven't seen it yet, but I feel like Marvel has done, and Disney, of course, have done such a great job with the Marvel movies as a whole that we could definitely trust that it's going to be a good, fun movie. Unlike DC, an entirely different thing, all of their movies so far have sucked. And Wonder Woman looks like it might not suck, and I really hope it doesn't suck, but it's probably going to suck. So that's my pick. Guardians of the Galaxy. All right. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Uh, The first one is something that my business coach introduced me to. And funny enough, it's actually more along the lines of uh, what a personal interpersonal thing. Um, And and I had heard of this before, but I didn't realize that there was a free uh, survey that you could take that would give you information on this. Um, but I had heard of the five love languages, but I had never actually like dug into it more than that. 
And, oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, and I was I was talking to her because my wife is stressed to the max. And uh, I was like, I'm like, what can I do? And she's like, well, you need to take this, you know, this profile and then you need to have her take it because you, you don't know what her love language is. And I'm like, no. So, um, so yeah, so I just took it and then I had her take it. And what's funny is, is that I thought for sure I was going to come down with like, um, uh, I think one of them's like uh, affectionate touching or something like holding hands and stuff. And that was the fourth one for me. So anyway, it was, and then I thought about it cause, uh, my, my major love language is quality time. And I started thinking about that and I was like, yeah, yeah. The, the people I feel like care about me the most are the people that I wind up spending quality time with the most. And so anyway, um, it also explains why I do some of the things I do. So it was very, very interesting. And I just, I'm super happy about that and what I learned there. Um, and then one other thing that I'm going to pick, and this is a tool that I'm, so this is like my third CRM in as many months. Um, but I'm switching everything over to a, a, a tool called blue tick. Um, it's bluetick.io. Um, it's currently in beta and it actually, I, I had actually given up on CRMs and I was looking at, you know, what, what do I want? Like, how would I design my own CRM? And is blue tick. So I'm super happy about it. It doesn't have all the features I want yet, but it's in beta. Um, and it does have most of the features I want, the critical ones. So anyway, I'm really digging it. Um, BlueTick.io. It's actually done by a friend of mine, Mike Tabor. And uh, I think the reason why it fits so well for that is that he basically got the idea to build it because he was putting together things for MicroConf which is a, a business conference. And so he needed the kind of follow-up you need to do things like land sponsors and uh, line up speakers. And if that sounds familiar at all, that's a lot of what I do for the podcasts is, you know, line up guests and follow up, um, you know? So anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really liking that and I'm super happy with it. And then one last pick, and this is something that I've been doing just to kind of unwind. And this is a game that's been out for a while and I've had for a while and I've beat several times, but I'm replaying Diablo three and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So I just started the same thing. I mean, you just run around and whack monsters. And what's frustrating to me is that I created a new character and the highest I can set him is to hard. And yeah, I'm just, you know, I don't even come close to dying. It's kind of anyway. Um, but and anyway, so I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, yeah, so if you want to hop on and, you know, go play multiplayer or something like that, let me know. Um, my username is cmaxw, the same as my Twitter handle, cmaxw. So uh, anyway, I'm, I'm happy to connect with anybody on there. Um, Surma, what are your picks? Okay, so I have two picks. And the first one is a little bit um, vague. But my first pick is JavaScript modules, because we have now reached the point where, at least behind the flag, all major browsers have support for them. And I'm so excited about it that we can now, after I don't know how many years of ES 2015, we can use the import statement and actually import additional files and have them load and don't have to resort to other implementations of module loaders. and. Um, I just want to start playing around with that and see what, what it offers in terms of um, ergonomics, how it's going to change, how we structure apps, and how it's going to play together with HB2 as well. And I think it's just 
super exciting that we can now explore that that territory of things that I, I have gotten that question so often on why were modules in ES2015, but no one implemented and you always had to clarify it was only the syntax, not actually the loading was not part of ES2015, which really didn't make sense. But finally, slowly, we are rectifying that. And I think only Node is still actually working on the implementation. Everybody else has it shipped behind the flag. And um, I think it's going to be good. It's going to be really interesting. And my... My second pick is a game as well, which I re—I played it a long time ago, just a little bit, found it boring. And for some reason, I tried it all again, and now I'm completely addicted. And it's Factorio, where you build... Your job is to build a factory where you start mining and turning those into resources. You uh, mine iron ore, turn it into iron plates, and you can put uh, turn those into conveyor belts and then automate the entire factory and bootstrap yourself up to the point where you reach the goal of the game, which is to launch a rocket into space with a satellite. And that sounds kind of dull, but is it is amazing, especially if you are somewhat like a optimization and performance geek like I am, where you actually obsess over the items per second going over the conveyor belt and how many factories you need to fully satisfy that throughput and optimize everything and have like really nice symmetric layouts. It's a great game to jump into for 15, 20 minutes just to switch off your brain. It's a little bit like Diablo 3, but more on the constructive side in terms of uh, mind numbingness. But I, I actually start drawing parallels to how a browser works to Factorio, like how my resources are, my budget to ship a frame, and I have to give everything in time to maximize throughput to actually be at 60 frames per second. It's, it's nerdy, I know, but it's just, it really speaks to me. And if anyone wants to have a really, a non-expensive game to play in between with a very active and very nice community around it, I can only recommend Factorio. Very cool. If people want to follow what you're doing or get the latest news on HTTP2, what are some good resources for that? Uh, I have to admit, I mostly broadcast my stuff over Twitter, where I'm Das Surma, D-A-S Surma. Uh, very happy to, to keep everyone up to date on HTTP2 or answer questions. Uh, not only HTTP2, but also loading performance in general and web app performance in general. Very happy to, to help out there. It's always interesting to me. So hit me up. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Surma. We're going to go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll catch everyone next week. Thank you very much. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.